series on God's characteristics, and the characteristic that we're going to talk about this morning is the love of God. We're going to talk about love, right? Um, when Pastor Vujin and I first thought about preaching about the characteristics of God over the summer, like I'm gonna, I, I, I accuse Pastor Ujin of getting, taking the easy road and talk about, talk about love. Because we think talking about the holiness of God is hard. Talk about the love of God is easy. Or so you will think. We think, love, talk, we think the subject of love is easy because we think we kind of understand what love is. But when we actually open up the Bible and actually talk about how God loved us, we realized we had a very shallow understanding of God's love. If I say God is to, an, to, a, to a person who is walking down the street, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, if I say God is, 90% of the time people will say God is love. Everyone agrees that God is love. And they're right. God is love. God is God's inherent characteristic. That's what verse 8 says, right? God is love. Love is God's inherent nature characteristic. It is simply who he is. It is such, he's such love, right? He is love, he is love itself, basically. That's what John is saying. To the point where John's saying, if a person does not love, that person has no idea who God is because God himself is love. God is love. If you don't love, you have no idea who he is because love is such a fundamental characteristic nature of God. Okay? Love. Let's talk about the love of God, right? What, what is the love of God? Love, once again, is his inherent characteristic. Love is who he is. And love, all love, comes from him. That's what verse 7, that's what verse seven says, right? Um, let us love one another, for love is from God. Every love everywhere comes from God. God is the source of love. That's what verse 7, verse seven is talking about. What does that mean? How is God? How is God love, and how, how, is love, how does love come from God? To, do, to understand what this means, we've got to go back to the Trinity, right? We believe that God that we worship is a triune God. He is God the Father, God the, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Each person of the Godhead is distinct, but each person of the Godhead is fully God. I've got to be careful because... You know, if, I'm, if, I, if I give the wrong definition of the Trinity, that makes me a heretic. I hope what I said is right. There are three distinct person in the people, people in the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But in essence, they're all God. Why is this important? The Trinitarian nature of God is important because the relationship within the Godhead is a relationship of love. You understand? God himself, his very nature, he, God is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally loving together, loving each other. And Tim Keller, I'm not, I mean, he, he, he does good things sometimes, right? Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, 
had to give, give us a very, give, give us a very mm, mm, understandable definition of the nature of the Trinity. Tim Keller is saying, God is not self-centered. What does it mean to be self-centered? Self-centered means demanding other people see it our way and do what, do what we want them to do. Self-centeredness is, you know, when you're arguing with your spouse, you're yelling at your, you're frustrated with your spouse, and you have arguments with your spouse because your spouse cannot see it from your perspective. And the, your spouse doesn't, doesn't do what you want him or her to do. Isn't that what spousal arguments are all about? They don't see it from your perspective because you're right, and they don't do what you want to do because what you want the other person to do is really reasonable. Am I right? That's what marriage argument is all about. Self-centeredness. Keller is saying God is the opposite of that. No one in the Trinity demands, right, the other person of the Trinity see it from their perspective. No, Keller says, the life of the Trinity is a characteristic characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. What does he say? We are, we are the ones who demand, we, we are, what? Okay, he's saying, no one demands each other in the Trinity. Everyone voluntarily submits and loves each other. There is an eternal dance of self-sacrifice, deferring to others, right? Giving, each, giving oneself of the other. Yes, there is an order in the Trinity, Right? Where God the Father, right, is, you know, he, the Son submits to God the Father. There is an order in the Trinity. But that order doesn't mean that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit doesn't love each other. God is inherently loving. He, the, the inherent people of the, 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 the distinct people of the Trinity love each other. That's what it means for God is love. That relationship with the Trinity is how God created everything, including human beings. Because we're made in the loving by the loving nature of God, our DNA, we're designed to love. If we don't love, we literally die. Did you know that? If babies aren't held, right, on a regular basis, they die. I think World War II, after World War II, there's so many, so many like, orphan babies in the UK that they just had to, like, put all these orphan babies in a crib. The orphan mortality, the, the, ba- the infant mortality rate during that time skyrocketed because there was no one to hold the baby. If babies aren't held, if babies aren't confirmed that they're loved, they will literally die. If we, are not, if we do not love, we will go insane. When I was in the Korean army, there was this one dude who caused constant trouble for the barracks. In the Korean army, because we're one unit, if one dude does a mistake, the whole barrack gets into trouble. Because of that dude, we were woken up at 1 a.m., right? Because he wasn't supposed to eat lamyun, and he did, and he got caught, right? He, the, the, the sergeant woke us 
all of us up. And we have to put in our barracks, and we have to go to the field and run laps because of that dude. That dude was constantly causing problems to us. So what was our barrack solution? Oh, man, I feel ashamed. You know, I didn't participate in it, but the, 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 the chain of commands in my barracks is saying, all right, to punish that dude, no one is allowed to talk to him. Everyone ghosts him. Don't talk to him. Everyone ignore him. For a week. So I look at that guy and I observe what happens to a person when no one acknowledges him for a week. The guy went slowly insane. We're designed to love. If we don't have love, we die, we lose our sanity. Love is an integral part of who we are. It is everywhere, isn't it? What is the number one um, theme in all of pop culture, in all of art, in all the books that I've ever written? It is love, isn't it? Love is a dominant theme. Because I'm such a great husband, I took my wife to go see Free Guy last week. For those of you who don't free guy, it's about this dude. Like it's, a, it's about a video game world. Incredible graphic. After the movie, my wife said, that was the best movie ever. I go, really? But the reason why she thought that movie was the best movie ever, because at the core of what that movie is about, that movie is about love. You, you, there's it's funny parts. It's impressive computer graphics part. All that is great. The heart of that movie a love story. And my wife recognized we have an insatiable desire for love. I'm not a fan of crazy woke agenda, right? But the woke agenda, there is a good part of that. And the good part of the anti-racism training, anti-sexual harassment training, all of it, is that all these trains are designed so that we will be more loving to people at our place of work. I don't agree with the entirety of that you know, left culture, left political agenda, but I am thankful for the fact that at the heart of those things is a human drive to be more loving to one another. Our society hates intolerance. Because intolerance is the opposite of love. That's what our society believes in. Even our culture, even our work practice is fueled by love. It is who we are because we're made in the image of God. Everyone understand? Ya comprende? All right. So in order for us to understand love, we got to understand what God love is. And it is important for us to understand what the biblical definition of God's love is because many people have a wrong idea of love. We need proper biblical definition of love to fully under, to, to comprehend God's love for us because many people, especially people who are raised in the church, have this wrong idea of what love, what love of God is. 
is. The father of modern liberal theology is this guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher. Friedrich Schleiermacher was a theologian in the 1800s, and he is the father of modern, modern, he's the father of liberal theology. Every liberal theology, it stems from, it comes from, you can trace it to his teaching. What it, I mean, Schleiermacher did a lot of like, interesting work, but he, what he's known for is he's saying what the love of God is, is an experience, is a feeling. Hooked on a feeling. Love of God is not truth. It's not theology. It's feeling. You need to feel the love of God for the love of God to be true. Schleiermacher's work is dangerous. It's because he placed the human feeling above the truth of who God is. Every liberal theology, every dead theology is basically saying the human experience takes precedence over the truth of God. The church was built on the truth of God. Liberal theology is saying that's the, the supremacy is not the truth of God, the feeling you get when you worship God. Not just Schleiermacher, for generations after that, we think, I must feel the love of God for the love of God to be real. If I don't feel the love of God, then God is not love. Simplistic, but that's how a lot of people see it. I don't know, the, I don't know where we started to like close our eyes, and you know, like close the lights and sing these Songs, these songs, I don't know what the origin of that is, but the intent behind the way we worship here this morning, or the style that we come to worship, worship this morning, I think it is, we want to elicit a feeling of love in you. When, we, when, we, when you come into the sanctuary, we want you to feel the love of God by... I don't want to say manipulate. Oops, I did. By presenting God in a certain way to make you feel that you love him. Look, uh, it's true. When you are close to God, you feel that he loves you. That's absolutely true. But defining the love of God exclusively on your feelings is not right. God is love regardless of whether you feel he loves you or not. And that's a mistake when I was in college, right? Like, all, when I was in college, I begged God to make, make me feel that he loves me. Lord, let me feel your love. That was my prayer every day when I was in college. But I realized, the love of God doesn't, you don't feel the love of God when you beg him to feel you, fill you up with him. You feel the love of God when your mind is convinced of the truth. Feeling that God loves you is a, is a result of your mind being persuaded of his love. 
It's not an automatic feeling. So many ministries still is, happens right now thinking that if they can generate a certain atmosphere, then you can, they can elicit a feeling of love, feeling of, love of God in, in, in the church members. That's not true. Like I was talking to one of, my, one of our college guys, and I said, hey, well, how's your college ministry? And he says, a lot of my friends are just waiting to feel God's love in their lives. I go, what? Yeah, it seems like a lot of them are just waiting for God to do something in their lives. And I said, boy, tell your friends the love of God is felt when your mind is persuaded by, by who he is. No one told my friend that. They still think that they God need to do something to make them feel that they love him. And if they don't feel it, then God's love is not real. Hogwash. The love of God is, God is love regardless of whether we feel him or not. The second bad definition of the love of God is, the love, God loves me when good things happen to me. And if bad things happen to me, God cannot be loving. How do I know this? I'm, I'm, I follow a lot of former Christians, Christians who lost their way. The number one reason why these dudes and girls lost their way and give up faith is because something bad happened to them. And if something bad happens to me, they say, God cannot be loving. If some bad things are happening in the world, God cannot be loving. They have a shallow definition of the love of God. Good, good equals love, bad equals no love. The Bible is clear. God is loving whether good things happen to you or not. God's loving characteristics does not change whether good or bad things happen to us. God himself is love. Nothing can change that. We have to stop looking, judging the love of God from our limited definition of what love is and embrace what the Bible says about what the love of God is. Oh, man, introduction is kind of long. All right, I'll, I'll hurry it up. The middle part, I'll just quick, go quickly. There are, how does the Bible define God's love? There are different ways, right? There are many, many examples of how God loves us. One of the first ways that God loves us is he is benevolent. He is a, he, God is benevolent. What is the definition of benevolence? Definition of benevolence is this is the disposition to see good of others and bless them and promote their welfare. The benevolence of God is God's disposition to do good to others and bless them and promote their welfare. The benevolence of God is God's providing for everyone in this world. Whether you're a sinner or not, whether you belong to him or not, God is benevolent to everyone in this world. How do you know? Psalm 145, verse 9, and verse, 9 verse 15 to 16. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open, you, you open your hand and, and satisfy the desires of every living thing. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 to 45. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. These two verses are examples of how God's benevolence towards all living things. God is a provider, the sustainer of life to all living things. Let me give you an example. Um, The first example of God's benevolence to all living things, the earth is perfectly situated in the galaxy to sustain life. I I geek out over this guy named Hugh Ross, right? You should YouTube him. Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist who came to Christ when he was 22. Why? Because he, because the Bible, he says, confirms what he's studying in astrophysics, how the universe is made. The more he reads the Bible, the more he says the Bible got it right in in his description of the galaxy. One example he gives us, he says the earth is perfectly situated for life. One example he gives is Jupiter. I never knew this. Jupiter, I don't know what Jupiter is, but he says Jupiter is one of the planets in our solar system. And Jupiter is so important because Jupiter, by its size and location, it shields us, it shields the earth from comets and asteroids. Remember those, like, end-of-the-world movies back in the early 2000s where, like, meteorites come and destroy the Earth? That doesn't happen to us because of Jupiter. Jupiter is perfectly situated to be the shield against comets and, 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 and asteroids. He says there are 805 examples of, the, of, of our place in the solar system that shows how, how, how we are perfectly situated for life. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, you live in a world that is guarded by Jupiter. God sustains every life in this world. He gives, he sends rain. He provides food. What happens if there's no rain? There is drought. What happens if there's there's a drought? Every living creature dies, right? If there's no rain, every living creature will die. Jesus says, God is the one who sends rain. He's the one who empowers human beings to bless the earth. He blesses the earth through our labor. Did you know that? The way God provides for you is he gives creativity and work productivity to each individual so that all of us will contribute to the sustainability of the world. Look, I represent so many different people in so many different classes, right? From CEOs to cooks to chefs. I I, I recently represent a veterinarian, right? The guy who, like, designs organs for dogs. That's one of my clients, right? I design, I represent a guy who designs space cars. And all these, I, I, I work with interesting people. But what I, but what I know by working with these interesting people is everyone contributes for the embetterment of the world. God sustains the world 
through the talents and the work of human beings. All of you, including auditors, are contributing to the embitterment of this life. Did you know that? Praise God, auditors, right? All of you are involved in the embitterment of the world. You are God's grace at your, for this world. You are God's grace at your work site. He sends rain. He, he puts Jupiter. He gives the world you and me. And another example of God's benevolence is he represses our sin potential. Look, all of us have the potential to be monsters. As Paul Washer says, everyone has the potential to be a Hitler. And the only reason we don't have more Hitlers running around is because God suppresses the evil in people. He does not allow people to live out their full evil potential. That's the benevolence of God. Do you understand? God is benevolent towards you. You as an individual, he's benevolent towards. John Flavel, the Puritan, the Puritan writer, he says, once again, it is the call of every Christian to actively med- meditate upon God's benevolence towards you. He's saying nothing is an accident. Everything that is happening to you is because of seemingly unrelated events coming together for your good. I'll give you an example. JYP, the great Korean producer, right? The reason he came to faith in Christ is he realized he's only responsible for maybe 5% of his success. He says, 95% of my success come from an invisible hand. He says, I really didn't contribute to my success. Someone like, move the pieces in my life for my success. I want to know who that person is. That's what started on his journey. And he realized the person who, who moves on the pieces of his life is Christ. Similar to you and to me. You have the job you have, not because you're awesome, but seemingly unrelated events coming together to give you that opportunity. God opening the eyes of your employer to say yes to you. Isn't that, isn't that true? Do you know how I got my lawyer job? I applied to my law firm maybe like three years before I got, I got hired. Three years later, they called me out of the blue and said, hey, we found your resume in our repository. We think you look good, kid. Come on over. I got interviewed. The very next day, I got hired. When I first applied for that position three years before, I was ghosted. Not even, thank you for applying. I got nothing. I thought that was a done deal. Three years later, they dug my resume out. My resume was resurrected. Random events coming together for God to place you where you are right now. Prayer, Flavel says, 
is meditating, actually just sitting down and tracing back all these things happening to you, all the good things that God, God moved so that you are where you are right now. One of the Netflix shows that I really love is a show called Movies That Made Us. Does Sean Stark know Movies That Made Us? That's a great show. That show is about how, the, how they make, it's about how these classic movies like Back to the Future were made. And if you actually study, look behind the scenes of how these movies were made, they were a hot mess. For example, Pretty Woman, they didn't have a script. Everyone was improvising in the movie set. No one knew what was going on. When they saw the finished product, they said, we made that movie? They had no idea. It was a mess. It was a disaster. But miraculously, pieces got placed together to make that movie. That is your life and mine. Nothing you do is an isolated event. It is a situation of events that comes together so that God will, for your benefit, you have to meditate upon the benevolence of God in your life. That's the one type of love in God's described in the Bible. The second type of love described in the Bible is God being patient and merciful. Where is that Bible verse? Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, before him, before Moses and proclaim, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some, some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting everyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What, is the, what, are, what are these two verses saying? He's saying, one of the ways that God demonstrates his love in this world is not punishing people's sin right now. God is patient, right? Are there some of you who have like, do you guys have like, some, some of you have hulking out tendencies? When something upsets you, you just hulk out. No, you're more patient than that, right? God is a God who is holy. When he sees unholiness and destruction, a holy God must flip the tables and smite the unholiness. That's what a just God should do. But rather than doing that, God is patient. He does not destroy the world. Remember why God destroyed the world in Genesis during Noah's time? It's because when God looked at the world, he realized men were full, filled with violence. The world was filled with the violence of men. And that's why he had, to he had to destroy it. Our world is also filled with similar violence. Did you know that? And I, I read a Washington Post article like a couple of years ago. And the Washington Post article was about um, this. It was, it was about a Cox cable service person. She was a female. Right? So a Cox cable operator, she was a female, and she was driving around in Great, her route is Great Falls, Virginia. You know Great Falls, Virginia, where all the rich people live, right? The fancy mansion and houses. 
That was her territory. And she wrote about the evil that is going on in those homes. The abusive father, right? The messed up team. He says, behind these great houses are broken, like, very damaged families. It was very eye-opening. There is a palpable sin and violence that is happening within these homes. You know those homes that we're jealous of? The content of those homes are violence, misery. How about your home? All of you seem well-adjusted. I certainly seem well-adjusted, don't I? But if you know what is happening in our homes, what is it? Is it resentment? Sin? Arguments? Unforgiveness? Verbal violence? It's filled with violence, isn't it? Holy God should... Quashes, right? But he doesn't. Because God is patient and merciful. That is the love that God, one of the, also another attribute of the love of God in the Bible. But the very definition of the love of God that we study in 1 John chapter 4 is God's gracious love. God is not only patient and merciful. He's also very gracious, the gracious love of God. What is the definition of grace? If I say grace, you'll say free love of God. And that's not really true. This is my heroes of my seminary, A.A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield. This is, what he, this is how they define the grace of, what grace of God is. The grace of God, listen to... Take notes. This is good stuff. You're not going to hear it anywhere else. I guarantee it. The grace of God is, number one, God's motive and intent to save sinners. Number one, the grace, gracious love of God is God's motive and intent to save sinners. Second aspect of the grace of God is God implementing his intent by sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for sinners. Whew. Third aspect of the grace of God is, is the total change in the sinner's moral character by the energy of the Holy Ghost. Third aspect of God's grace is God energizes, God sends the Holy Spirit, and he energizes something in us to change our nature from those who once were apart from him, but now who agree with him. We were talking about this on Friday's small group. How do you overcome sin? By God changing your appetites. How do you not gossip? But God letting you have a distaste for gossip. Where does that distaste come from? Holy Spirit energizing you to changing your nature. That's the grace of God. Grace of God is not only a free love of God, but it is the power of God that energizes the, the, the nature change of a sinner. 
But in order for our natures to change, he needed to send his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the very definition of love, right? In, in the word love that, that John uses in, ver, in 1 John chapter 4 is the word agape. When John used the word love in 1 John chapter 4, he uses the word agape. What is the word agape? What, is, what does agape mean? Agape means self-sacrificing love. Agape love is unconcerned with the self and concerns with the greatest good for another. Agape isn't born just out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will of will and as a choice. Agape is a self-sacrificing love of God for his enemies. Agape love of God is a very costly love of God because it cost him his son to redeem us and to make us his. Agape love is a self-sacrificing, weighty, costly love. True love costs something. It is very, true love is bearing the weight of someone. You understand? I'll give you an example. Romantic love. It's great, isn't it? The butterflies, chemistry. I remember when I first asked my wife out on a date, hey, would you go out with me? Would you want to watch a movie? Oh, I couldn't sleep that entire night. When she said yes, I was so excited. Never felt a way about a girl before. Don't tell my wife this when you see her today. But when I, like, when she said yes, oh, I couldn't sleep all night. And she, she, and she said she couldn't sleep all night, too. That's true love, isn't it? No, it ain't. Why? Because that kind of love doesn't cost me anything. Feelings doesn't cost me anything. What is true love? When you're actually married, when the burdens of that other person become your burden. When the history of that person's trauma and the person's sin and the person's insanity, not that, I'm not saying my wife is insane. Human beings are very heavy, weighty, complex, hurtful, and Beings. When you marry them, when you're walking with them, their sins and their insanities and their traumas and their pain and their family becomes yours. Y'all who marry know what I'm talking about. Look at me, yo. You know what I'm talking about. We think, oh, the other person, and you agree with me. Yeah, PJ, you're right. The other other person is really, my spouse is really heavy. I'm not talking about his weight, right? He's just crazy. I'm very light. 
I'm light as a feather. I have no issues. I have no trauma. I have no sin. No, you're just as heavy. Human beings think the other person is heavy, but I'm light as a feather. No, you're not. You are heavy as well. Two heavy people living life. That's why they get divorced. You are attract, we are attracted to each other by the cheap, cheap love. Butterflies and feelings and whatever it is. But when you actually start to bear each other's weight, you can't bear it. You understand? Marriage is great. Single people, <laughs> marriage is great. We should all get married. But man, is it heavy. I don't have any problem with marriage, by the way. Right? Marriage is great. I, I, I'm a free guy with my wife. How, how can it be bad? But it's not just marriage. Love itself is very heavy. I was talking to my good old brother, Yoel, last week. Right? Yoel, he's a missionary in Tanzania. And he says, the problem with Tanzania is this. There are a lot of organizations who are donating money to Tanzania because Tanzania is an impoverished country. The NGOs in America, USAID, all these liberal think tanks, they pour money into Tanzania. And money is great, he says. And Sean Stark will know, I'm a big fan of pouring money into a problem until it gets solved. That's, that's my MO. Just pour money in and it's going to get solved. But the problem with that mentality is everyone tried to pour money into Tanzania, but no one is actually willing to work with the natives of Tanzania to improve that country. People give money to Tanzania and feel really good about themselves. Yay, we helped an impoverished country. They write a check, they feel really good about themselves, and they peace out. No one wants to actually live there and work with the locals. Yoel says that's the major problem. Tanzanians either get really like, relied upon you know, the Western help so that they don't want to help themselves, or the Western people don't help the crime problem. No one wants to get involved. Look, money is great and all, but if no one's willing to lay the burden and work with the people, it's not going to work. No one wants to do the heavy lifting. Everyone wants to feel good about love, but no one wants really to do the heavy work. Love is weighty. Jesus Christ knows the weight of our sin. To love us, he took away that weight of our sin. God put all the weight of our sins on him. Jesus Christ took the weight of our sins and he died on the cross. No one is willing to take our weight but him. Do you understand? That's what it means to be a Christian. Your sins and my sins makes our existence very difficult and burdensome. But to take away that burden... He laid our sins on Jesus Christ. When we believe in him, when we believe he took our weight on him, and because he did, we can live. When we know that that's true, 
are born again. To love us, Jesus Christ took the weight of our sins and died on the cross. That's God's definition of love. That's what it says, right? That's what it says. What does it say? It says, this is love, verse 10. This, this is love. This is the definition of love, 1 John verse 4, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what love is. That's what agape is. Agape is not a feeling. Agape is not, oh, like, you know, just like cheap kind of romantic, social justice kind of love. You know, like advocating social justice via Twitter. Ooh, I hate racism. Now, it's not that kind of cheap love. It is a weighty love. It is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ who took our weight of sin to free us. Is that how you define your Christianity? Is that how you define your faith? Look, suffering servant, met, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. This is what Isaiah wrote about Jesus, suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Surely he took up, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wound, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. Read your homework this week. Meditate upon Isaiah 53. What it took Jesus to love you and love me. What it took for him to bear the weight of our sins. He was crushed. He was suffered. He took our pain. Jesus did that. John is saying, that's what love is. Yes, God is benevolent. Yes, God will provide for you. Yeah, 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 that's all great. But true love is about bearing your weight of sin. Is that how you define your Christianity, y'all? Why are you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? The only reason, the only proper reason that you should call yourself a Christian is if you knew that Jesus Christ bore the weight of your sin to make you free. The only reason I am up here doing what I do. I'm not insane. Don't you think I want a day off? But the only reason I'm up here is because I know. The only thing that defines me is the fact that he took the weight of my sin. And I am free because of him. Is that your confession too? Do you know the love of God that way? 
Maybe you don't know the love of God. Because, let's, let's be honest. Maybe you don't think you're heavy. Are you aware of the weight of your sin? The reason I talk about sin so much is not to make you feel bad, but to glorify Jesus, right? The only way they can truly understand his love is for you to understand the weight of your sin. If you don't understand the weight of your sins, he doesn't need to die for you, right? Why would he need to die for you if, if you don't feel the weight of your sins? Me talking about sin should not make you feel bad. Me talking about your sin should, should let you praise Jesus of, his, of, his, of the fact that he's bearing your weight. My dear friends, is that your confession of your faith? That Jesus Christ took the weight of your sins in a real way. Are you really persuaded by this? That's the only way that you truly feel God's love in your life. Yeah, good things happen to me. Yeah, yeah, I got this job. Yeah, miraculous thing. Praise the Lord. That's all great. But the true love is he set me free from my sin. If you are this person whom Christ has set free, what is your call? Your call, verse 11, Beloved, if God, is, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The word love here, once again, is agape. If God agape me, if God self-sacrificed for my weighty sin, guess what? You have to agape each other. You have to bear the burden of other people's sin. You have to live a heavy life. And verse 12, I'm sorry we didn't mention it here. He says in verse 12, I'll read it in the NIV version. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete, complete in us. The reason why God has strategically given people in your life, and God has strategically given you difficult, hard, insane, traumatic people, he has. Praise the Lord. He has. He really has. How do I know? I talk to you, and I know. Your life is surrounded by crazy, like, irrational, difficult, people who will never see your way type of way, people in your life. He has. He has given you heavy people. Why? Because by loving them, his love will be made complete in you. How do you become like Christ? But doing what he did, bearing the heaviness of the people in your life. What does it mean to bear the heaviness? I don't know. Maybe it means to just live with the pain for a long time. Maybe the person that you're married to is really heavy. I'm not talking about weight, right? But like they're really messed up and they're really heavy. What do you do? Bearing the weight is not ignoring them. But maybe all it is talk, maybe all it is about is just sitting down and listening to them. Husbands, that's what your wives want you to do. Your wives don't want to solve your problems. Guys, look at me. You guys don't have the tools to solve your wife's problem. You don't. I'm sorry, I know all of you. I, I love you, but you have no tools to solve the problems that your wife is going through. You don't. 
And ladies, you have no tools to how to solve the, the damaged boy issues of your husband. You don't. There is no solution that you have for your spouse. You don't. How do you bear it? You go to the source of love and ask, you for, ask him for wisdom and the patience to bear it. And I guarantee you, he's going to help you. Verse 12 says, God resides in us. And he will complete his love in us, which means he's going to help you bear the burdens of the difficult people of your life. God has strategically placed these difficult people in your life so that you will go to him, so that he will help you bear their burden. Dudes, you're not going to solve your wife's problem by taking her to Hawaii or buying her a Birkin bag. You're not. It goes when you bear her burdens by going to Christ daily and seeking his wisdom and help. Guys, the, way, the best way that I love my wife, it's not me lecturing to her. It's not me being Pastor Jay to her. But simply listening, and sometimes listening is hard, right? Because when, when I'm listening to her, I feel like she's accusing me. Right? Guys are like that. And she seems to give me problems that I cannot possibly solve. But God is saying, it's not your job to solve her problems. But listen, pray for her, pray with her, listen to her. Walk with her continuously for a long, long time. That, maybe that's the burden that God has placed you. But whatever reason is, God was going to help you. They're the difficult people of your life. He gave you those people to perfect you. You understand? So praise God for the crazy people in your life. Praise God for the crazy family members. Praise God for the irrational mother-in-laws and father-in-laws. Praise God for the crazy boss, the irrational client, the difficult children who don't listen to you. Praise God for all of them. Because through them, your faith would be perfected. It's hard. Trust me, I know it's hard. But that's why you need to go to him. He will provide for you. God's purpose is so that we will love like he loved. That's his purpose for us. The very definition of love is agape, bearing, self-sacrificing love for the unworthy. He wants you to do that, and he's going to help you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we are here this morning because we are loved by you.